The Metropolitan Opera Guild is the premier arts education organization dedicated to enriching the lives of children and adults through the magic and artistry of opera. To learn more about the Guild's many exciting programs and events, please visit metguild.org. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast. I'm your host, Naomi Baratera, and the goal of our podcast is to share knowledge and insights into the operatic art form, drawing our content from a variety of different educational programming that we have going on here at Lincoln Center in New York City. The second half of the summer is a special time for German opera fans, as people from all over the world make a pilgrimage to Germany for the annual Bayreuth Festival. This festival is entirely dedicated to the operatic output of Richard Wagner, including performances of the entire Ring Cycle, an epic series of four operas with interconnected stories and musical leitmotifs. So for this week and next week's episode, we thought it would be fitting to take a tour through these amazing works via a four-part Talking About Opera program with former Met Opera radio broadcast host Peter Allen. We are going to indulge a little bit by releasing four episodes over the next two weeks, one for every opera in the cycle. So without any further delay, this is Peter Allen talking about the first opera in the cycle, Wagner's Das Rheingold. Richard Wagner is probably the most formidable talent in the entire history of art. So wrote the distinguished author Thomas Mann. One of the most formidable works in all the history of art is Wagner's great cycle of four music dramas, The Ring of the Nibelung, which has been enjoyed passionately for over a century and enjoyed on many levels. This is Peter Allen beginning a series entitled Talking About the Ring, produced by the Metropolitan Opera Guild, which I hope will have some new insights for those who are somewhat familiar with the ring, but is also addressed to those who don't know it and wonder what all the passion and controversy are about. Happily, Wagner is not only one of the most influential figures in all the arts, but also one of the most interesting. If ever there was a bundle of contradictions, it was Richard Wagner. He began the ring with a clear philosophy of optimism, and he ended it in ambiguous fatalism. He's famous for writing that music should serve drama, and famous for writing music that dominates the drama. He fulminated against the grandiosity of grand opera, yet he exploited grandiosity to the full. In many ways, his thinking was admirable, and in many ways, it was ridiculous. In the words of his clear-eyed friend and admirer, the young composer Peter Cornelius, Wagner was, quote, too much intent on making his mental greatness cover his moral weaknesses. That greatness of mind did not show itself early, but perhaps we today can see an indication of it. At the age of 17, when most of Europe felt Beethoven's Ninth Symphony was impossible, Wagner understood it and revered it. He was like most of Europe in revering Shakespeare, and at the age of 14, he began writing a mighty tragedy named Leubaut, modeled partly on Hamlet. He tells us... 42 of its characters died, and he had to bring back more than half of them as ghosts in order to finish the play. Well, the once lost manuscript later turned up, and his description seems to be exaggerated, but it proves he did write the play. 
after writing Das Liebesverbot, which had one performance during his lifetime, and after more than two and a half years in Paris of hack work, bleak failure, and desperate poverty, Wagner had a sensational success with his grand opera Rienzi in Dresden. Because of Rienzi, he was named conductor Kapellmeister at the Royal Opera in Dresden, and so at the age of 30, he had achieved lifetime security. Even greater recognition, if lesser success, soon came with the Flying Dutchman and Tannhäuser. He also wrote a long report urging reform of the Royal Opera. As a small example, one of the things he wanted to reform was the physical layout of the orchestra. It's startling to learn that in those days, and not only at Dresden, not all the orchestra players could see the conductor well, and the music often sounded like it. But the reforms threatened the security of incompetent players and of incompetent management, and it was rejected. To Kapellmeister Wagner in Dresden in 1848, it was galling to know his sensible reforms had been blocked by an aristocratic establishment. Not only that, but by 1848 he had composed Lohengrin and that same management was blocking its production, partly because they felt him to be a threat. In his frustration, Wagner saw just one hope, not just to reform the Royal Opera, but to reform society. At that time, there was a growing interest in constitutional monarchy, and Wagner wanted the king to rid himself of the corrupt nobility, including those who were frustrating Wagner. In 1849, armed uprising broke out in Dresden. Wagner was active in it. It was put down by force, and he fled to his friend Franz Liszt, now Kapellmeister in Weimar. The next year, 1850, Liszt would conduct the premiere of Lohengrin, but without Wagner who was now subject to arrest in any of the German states. With the help of Liszt, he fled on to Switzerland and a 12-year exile. Just recently, in 1848, he had also begun a remarkable creative period. After completing Lohengrin, he wrote almost no music for five years. He wrote some prose sketches for possible operas. He wrote a libretto called The Death of Siegfried. And he wrote treatises about opera, only dimly aware that both as theory and as propaganda, they were preparing the way for the ring. I was aiming at a target nobody else could see. He looked at his libretto for the death of Siegfried, decided it needed some background, and wrote The Young Siegfried. Over a period of four sometimes exhausting years, I'm simply putting too much passion into my work, he wrote in somewhat backward order four librettos, a trilogy with a prologue. The prologue he called The Rape of the Rheingold, later simply Das Rheingold. The trilogy begins with Die Valkyrie, which he pronounced with the accent on the first syllable. Then came The Young Siegfried, later shortened to Just Siegfried, and finally The Death of Siegfried, later called Twilight of the Gods, Goethe Dämmerung. To begin Das Rheingold, he needed music that would introduce not just a big work, but a work, he said in a letter to Liszt, that would include the beginning and end of the world. A work about the triumph of love over power, the triumph of natural man over corrupt society. Like illustrious German writers, including Goethe and Schiller, he wanted to reestablish the theater 
as the profoundly significant institution he felt it had been for the ancient Greeks. Through the theater, he wanted to bring about the moral regeneration of Germany, a goal that would be fervently shared by the young king Ludwig II of Bavaria, without whom the ring might never have been realized. But for such a work, how to begin the music? We have Wagner's own description of the creative breakthrough. He decided to refresh himself by traveling, and in the Italian town of La Spezia, after having overindulged, he found himself feverish and exhausted from dysentery. He lay down to take a nap and suddenly felt that he was sinking in water, rushing over his head to the sound of an unchanging chord in E-flat, accompanied by melodic figures of increasing motion. He woke in terror, feeling the water was high over his head. But in a moment, he knew that there had emerged what he had all along carried within him but couldn't quite discover, the orchestral prelude to Das Rheingold. Whether the story of La Spezia is quite true or not, Wagner did not begin the prelude to Das Rheingold with a chord of E-flat, but daringly, unprecedentedly, with only one note, a long, low E-flat, played by eight-string basses, half of them specially tuned even lower than normal. After several seconds of only that low E-flat, he adds just one more note played by three bassoons. And only after an astonishing half-minute of just two low notes sounding harmoniously together does he add a few notes played by a single French horn, followed one at a time by seven more French horns, each playing the same notes, but slowly beginning to overlap each other to add a feeling of motion. Now, that historic first production of The Complete Ring took place in the theater Wagner designed specifically for the cycle in the small Bavarian town of Bayreuth, where musicians, artists, statesmen, and royalty had gathered from many countries to devote themselves to the four operas performed on August 13th and 14th, 16th and 17th, 1876. In keeping with another revolutionary idea, completely darkening the house, he deepened the orchestra pit and put a shell over it, hiding the orchestra and conductor from the audience. Just imagine how that first audience felt, knowing, as did the world, history was being made as they listened in strange, awesome darkness to that brooding, portentous E-flat, the first note of the epoch-making work they knew lay ahead, the first timeless note of creation itself.
From the still primeval substance of the world, and then nature awakening, Wagner goes on to add more instruments portraying the majestic Rhine River. And he adds still other instruments, not for loudness, but for new richness of tone. A large orchestra is now playing more notes, more and more rapidly, depicting the powerful flow of the river although the harmony is still determined by that calm opening E-flat, and although the underlying tempo remains majestically the same. With the river music in full flood, the curtain rises on a watery scene in greenish light on the rocky bottom of the Rhine. It's misty below, but high above, the water flows strongly. In between, around the central tallest rock, there swims, gracefully and happily, one of the three daughters of the Rhine. As she swims, she sings words that were parodied in their own time, but were poignantly echoed by poet T.S. Eliot in his masterpiece, The Wasteland. Wagner explained that they are a bit like the nonsense words of a nursery song, but based on the language of centuries earlier. The first nonsense word, via, W-E-I-A, is related to the idea of holiness. The word for holy water is vivasa. The second word is related to water, and the others clearly refer to waves and a cradle. I've rarely seen the whole line translated, but at the risk of being presumptuous, let me offer, holy water, billow you waves, flow to the cradle. Via, vaga, voga duvela, the name of this Rhine daughter is Voglinda, and her melody will be heard many times in the ring. It will recall the Rhine maidens to us with significance to the drama, whether it is sung by them or played by the orchestra. The cradle she is singing about is that tall central rock she is gracefully circling, for in it lies the Rhinegold, a large nugget of gold she later says is sleeping. She and her two sisters are supposed to be guarding the gold. At this point, I'd like to touch on three terms that were of crucial importance to Wagner as a creator. All three of them apply to Voglinda's first sentence and to the whole cycle of the ring. The three are myth, Stabreim, and leitmotif. Myth, Wagner tells us, is the proper subject of music drama because it deals with fundamental truths about human nature. The feeling of myth is reinforced by that ancient sound of the words Voglinda sings, and they evoke not only ancient language, but also the poetry of centuries earlier, which used a form of alliteration called Stabreim. The most obvious feature of Stabreim is that it rhymes not the ends of lines, but only the beginning consonants of words. Via, vaga, voga, duvela, valet, sorviga. And Stabreim not only does away with end rhyme, but even more important for Wagner, it also does away with regular rhythmic patterns of poetry that had always been used in librettos. Stabreim has irregular rhythms, and irregular numbers of syllables in each line, an irregularity, a flexibility, that allowed Wagner to write what he felt 
was closer to natural human speech. Wagner had been moving in this direction even before the ring, and people like Robert Schumann wondered how music could be written for Wagner's librettos. In opera, by and large, they were used to hearing the storyline carried forward in sung prose, recitative, and hearing emotional reactions, or at least virtuoso displays of singing, in arias set to poetry. Indeed, in comic opera or in a zingspiel like the magic flute, the prose was not even sung but spoken. To Wagner's friends, his librettos, which had no arias, looked like all prose, all recitative. And to some in the first audiences, it did indeed seem like all recitative. For in the ring, Wagner, in effect, replaced both recitative and aria with something in between them. And the result was richly woven with leitmotifs, leading motifs. Short musical phrases called leitmotifs had been used before the ring to represent a person, a thing, an idea, but with the ring, their use became significantly different and far more important. In the ring, motifs go through limitless numbers of transformations, changes in harmony, in rhythm, tempo, structure, instrumentation, changes lending the total work unprecedented color, unending variety, and yet musical unity. It has often been said that Wagner never used the word leitmotif, but in fact he did use it once, not disparagingly. He mildly rebuked his follower, Hans von Volzogen, for not adequately explaining Wagner's use of the, quote, so-called leitmotifs, sogenannten leitmotive. Wagner referred to the many changes he had made in the single motif of the Rhine daughters. Which brings us back to Voglinde swimming happily around that tall rock. She is joined by her sister, Velgunde, in something like a game of underwater tag. Flosshilde, the most serious of the three, warns that if they don't guard the gold more carefully, they'll regret it. Heinrich Porges, a respected musician Wagner asked to take notes at the first Bayreuth rehearsals, tells us the Rhine maidens should be sung with naive gaiety in glaring contrast, he says, to the next creature we'll meet, and almost immediately after Flosshilde's warning, the music takes on a darker, clumsy sound, introducing an ugly dwarf who is staring up at them longingly from the bottom of the river, and then calls up that he'd like to play with them. <laughs> The dwarf's name is Alberich, and he's a member of a tribe of dwarfs called Nibelungs, miners and metalworkers who live deep in the earth in the realm of Nibelheim. Alberich is the Nibelung, whose ring, although he has not yet made it, will be pursued with tremendous consequences through the whole cycle. Alberich woos each of the Rhine maidens, clumsily clambering, sliding and slipping, sneezing and snorting. He no sooner gets halfway up the rock than Voglinda invites him to join her on the river bottom, but only to tease and torment him, and she laughingly leaves him. Each Rhine maiden in turn teases and rejects him, and all three laugh at him. Albrecht cries out twice the word wehe, meaning woe, a motif of only two notes, 
that at once convey a feeling of misery. Later, the goddess Fricka herself will sing those notes, indeed, to the same word, Vea. Still later, when Alberich is the cause of misery in others, the motif will be played by the orchestra alone in a sort of commentary on the stage action. In scene one, Alberich's woe soon changes to anger and threats. Then, suddenly, his attention is caught by a magical gleam in the water. Voglinda calls out to her sisters to look. The first rays of the sun are waking the sleeping gold. As the sun rises, they comment happily on how its rays kiss the eye of the gold. The radiance fills the water ever more brightly, and the music reaches a brilliant climax in a trumpet call. Here is a single French horn playing the motif of the Rhine gold itself repeated by two French horns, then three, and finally, the trumpet. And the Rhine Maidens hail the gold joyfully, singing its name to a motif that will always make us think Rhine gold, Rhine gold. Although it's sung to the gold, in its full form, including the Hiaya Hiaya, it has been called the Rhine Maidens' joy in the gold. Wagner later transforms that first two-note Rhine gold to the Rhine Maidens' lament. In fact, we actually met those two notes for the first time in the very first word of Das Rheingold, that nonsense word, via. Here it is, and listen especially for its lingering repetition at the end of Voglinda's little song. Two notes we heard transformed from the simple happiness of Vaya to the exaltation of Rheingold and to the misery of Vaya. And those three illustrate whether we are conscious of it or not 
how Wagner's technique brings at one and the same time both variety and unity. Sung to the word Rheingold, that is what Wagner called the Rhine Maiden's motif, and as I mentioned, he spoke of the many transformations he made in it. As a matter of fact, we've already encountered another transformation, one that also lends both variety and unity, but one that may be a bit less obvious. Wagner took the rising motif of nature Wagner took that rising motif, and with little more than a breakup of the first note and a slight dip on the way up, transformed it into the motif of the gold. Here are first nature and then the gold. With the gold glowing brightly, Albrecht asks what it is. The Rhine maidens laugh. Has he never heard of the Rhine gold which brings them such joy? Albrecht scoffs at it as just a plaything, but they foolishly reveal that anyone who can make a ring of the gold will have the power to rule the world. And for the first time, we hear the motif of the ring. It begins with the words, Der Welt Erbe, the world's inheritance, or in English words, closer to the German rhythm, the world's wealth, the world's wealth would be gained for one's own. Der Welt Erbe gewinne zu eigen. Which we'll hear again in a moment. There's a catch, however, and the Rhine maidens are sure it rules out the poor, lovesick Albrecht. The catch, which throws an evil shadow over all four operas is that the magic needed to make the all-powerful ring from the gold will be granted only to one who renounces minna, the old poetic word for love, or, as it is sung, renounces love's power. Voglinde sings the melancholy motif of renunciation. Just one who power of love rejects, nur werde minna macht entsagt. But Albrecht, as the orchestra plays the ring motif, does consider trading love for power. He thinks to himself, Der Welt Erbe, the world's inheritance. If I can't have love, perhaps through cunning, I can still have pleasure, the German word Lust. He clambers clumsily but swiftly up the rock, and the Rhine Maiden's tune takes out a note of alarm, but only at his rage, and they still laugh as they flee when he calls, Spottet nur zu, go on and mock, the Nibelung is coming for your toy. <laughs> he climbs to the top, shouts that he will put out the Rhine Maiden's light, he will tear the gold from the rock and from it. Forge the ring. Here, you waters, so do I curse love. So verfluchig die Liebe.
With the light of the gold extinguished and the stage filled with churning black water swirling rapidly downward, so begins Alberich's descent to the gloom of Nibelheim, while we take the opposite direction toward a sunny place on a mountaintop where we meet the gods of northern mythology. Das Rheingold is in four scenes with no intermission. Wagner's transition music to cover the scene changes on stage skillfully blends musical reminiscences and anticipations. Between scenes one and two, he transforms the motif of the ring into that of a glorious castle. One of the ancient sources calls it a high, shining, golden hall, which we learn later in this scene is named Valhalla. It has just been built for the ruler of the gods, Wotan, and we'll see it in the background when the curtain rises, or the clouds part, for scene two. Here first is the ring motif, now somewhat simplified, and then Valhalla. Sometimes the Valhalla motif represents Wotan himself. A critic once wrote that only an extraordinary ear and mind could retain all the leitmotifs of the ring, and he was right. But it's not necessary to retain them all to be deeply stirred by this music. However, Heinrich Porges' rehearsal notes tell us that the Valhalla motif is the principal musical theme of the whole cycle. Since the motif of the ring is hardly unimportant, and since Wagner himself said that the secret of his musical form is the art of transition, here is all of Wagner's transformation of the ring motif into the Valhalla motif.
Wagner makes Valhalla sound more noble than the ring, and rightly so, for the two symbolize respectively, as Jeremy Noble has said, the dangerous, unfettered power of wealth and the stable, morally founded authority to which Wotan aspires. Nevertheless, both are symbols of power, and Wotan will prove to be, like Albrecht, a seeker of power even at the expense of love. Wagner himself said Wotan resembles us to a hair. Robert Donington, in his much reprinted psychological analysis of the ring, entitled Wagner's Ring and Its Symbols, tells us that Wotan is a symbol of the self. The critic Bernard Levin wrote that Wotan is perhaps the greatest single figure in all of art. Not myself having experienced all of art, I can't vouch for that, but neither am I inclined to dispute it. Levin refers to Wotan's complexity, and he is complex in Das Rheingold, and more so later. When scene two of Rheingold opens, he's a young, vigorous god who has just built himself a new house. Wagner's first prose sketch for Das Rheingold opened with Wotan swimming in the Rhine with the Rhine maidens. But in his final version, when we first meet Wotan, he's asleep, lying on a flowery bank with his wife Fricka, the goddess of marriage. She wakes, sees the newly built shining castle, and rouses Wotan, who proudly sings his famous Vollendet das ewige Werk, completed the eternal work. On the first day of orchestra rehearsal in Wagner's new opera house at Bayreuth, finally erected after agonizing struggle, when Wagner entered the auditorium, the members of the orchestra sang for him Vollendet das ewige Werk. Here it is, completed the eternal work. The brief figures, ta tikita ta, sometimes played with that Valhalla motif, can by themselves stand for Valhalla. And so can the accompanying two note figure. The god is in his glory. But Fricka is desperate. Wotan had made a contract with two giants to build the castle, and he agreed to pay them with, of all things, Fricka's sister Freya, the goddess of youth and love. The terms were set without Fricka's knowledge, and although she did want the castle, it was only as a pleasant home that would keep Wotan faithful to his marriage. To Wotan, she says, the castle means not domestic bliss, but power. She says he is willing to gamble away for power, Love and woman's worth, Liebe und Weibeswert. Those few notes will be recalled more than once, and they are perhaps surprisingly part of the renunciation motif which the orchestra played behind Fricka. Here they are again, followed by renunciation, and then again the partial form sung by Fricka. Und 
Don answers that he doesn't really intend to give Freya away, but just then she comes running from the giants, and we hear a short and fast statement of her music. Brief as it is, that passage has two parts. I'll play it again in a few moments. But this first time we hear it, it's really too fast to make out easily. Wagner later uses the two parts independently and at varying speeds. Here, for example, is the rising first part played later very slowly. And still later in Siegfried. And here's a later version of the second part. The rising first part is usually called Freya. The falling second part is sometimes called Fear, in German Angst, but more often it's called Flight because Freya is fleeing from the giants. However, the late Derek Cook, in his highly illuminating discussions of the ring, shows convincingly that that falling motif is the basic love motif of the entire ring. For example, here it is, that falling motif slowed down almost beyond recognition in Die Valkyrie. That descending motif is transformed from into one of the great love songs of opera, Du bist der Lenz from Die Valkyrie. Derek Cook and others point out quite rightly that giving names to motifs tends to restrict them unduly, limits the range of what they can stand for or express. Nevertheless, even after saying so, he uses names for motifs, and in fact it's difficult to discuss the motifs at any length without naming them. I'll have a bit more to say later about the motif of love or flight, but now with the brief music of Friar's quick entrance... Perhaps we can compromise and think of it as love in flight. At any rate, after Freya, the giants arrive, Fossold and Fafner, with a ponderous, earth-shaking motif. They ask for their pay for the castle. Wotan coolly says... Fine, what would you like? Fasolt is astonished, and as the orchestra plays Freya's music, he demands her by contract. Carved on Wotan's great spear are the signs or runes that spell out the rule of law of contracts and treaties. It's a solemn descending motif we'll hear more clearly in a moment, but now the strings play the descending motif of the spear or contracts. As Fasolt says, the wage already is stipulated. Bedungen ist es. Bedungen ist, was tauglich uns denkt.
Fasolt, though crude, is in love with Freya, as the violas, cellos, and especially the oboe, tell us with her music, while he talks of winning a loving wife. A touch Wagner's renowned biographer Ernest Newman found worthy of Mozart. Fossold is outraged with Wotan, and despite the stupidity he admits to, he rightly tells Wotan, what you are, you are only through treaties. Wotan replies weakly that it was all only a joke. Fafner cynically cuts off Fossold's complaining, he too wants Freya, but not for love. She tends the golden apples of youth, golden apple. Freya alone knows how to care for the apples, and without Freya and her apples, the gods will age rapidly to Fafner's great satisfaction. The giants are about to drag her away when her two brothers arrive, Fro and Donner, and threaten the giants. But Wotan raises his symbolic, powerful spear with the brass now blaring out its motif and forbids violence. Freya cries that Wotan is abandoning her, but the orchestra tells us that the rescuer Wotan has been waiting for all along is now approaching. He calls out, Endlich, Loga, finally, Loga, the god of fire and of trickery. Loga has more motifs than anyone else in the ring, but all of them are as unmistakably quick and flickering as the giant's motif is heavy and ponderous. Loga is also the god of mockery, and he teases Wotan, who he knows has been waiting impatiently, with a long story about inspecting the castle. The rehearsal notes of Heinrich Porges tell us that Loga should be played with ironic, carefree gaiety in contrast with a domineering, ill-tempered Wotan. Finally, talking mainly to Wotan, but really tantalizing the giants, Loga reveals in a lovely, lyrical narrative that he searched the world for something the giants might accept in place of Freya, a substitute for love, a substitute for woman's warmth and worth, Vibes von und Wert. You may recall that Fricka reproached Wotan with this music. Loga sings the phrase twice in his narrative, and the second time, even with a little embellishment, it's clear that it's derived from the renunciation motif. Here is the second, Vibus von der Untwert, 
followed by renunciation, nor werde minne macht entsagt. But although Loga searched in water, air, and earth, he found only one substitute acceptable to only one creature, the Nibelung, who gave up love and stole the gold of the Rhine maidens. And Loga is now keeping his promise to bring their complaint to Wotan. Wotan wants no new problems, but Fafner is now interested in the gold, especially since the giants and the Nibelungs are enemies. Loga explains that it will give power over all the world. Now Wotan is interested, and so is Fricka, especially when Loga tells her its power would keep a husband faithful. Also, he says, it would be all right to steal from a thief and return the gold to the Rhine maidens, an idea Wotan receives rather coolly. So does Fricka, who, as the goddess of marriage, disapproves of the three temptresses. In Das Rheingold, and much more decisively in Die Valkyra. She is often described as the voice of Wotan's own conscience. Fafner now claims Freya unless Wotan gets the gold for the giants, and they stalk off with her as hostage until sunset. The orchestra sadly intones the motifs of Freya and the golden apples, and Loga sees the gods growing pale and weak. Fricka calls out, alas, better known to us as Veil. And Loga exclaims, of course, it's for lack of the golden apples, of which Loga himself has no need, since he is only partly a god. Fricka reproaches Wotan over the god's predicament, and Wotan decides to go for the gold. Loga pretends to be happy for the Rhine maidens, and to needle Wotan further suggests they go down to Nibelheim through the Rhine. Not through the Rhine, cries Wotan, and they disappear through a sulfur cleft in the ground as the stage grows dark, and the orchestra takes us to Nibelheim, recalling motifs that include those of Loga, misery, renunciation, and love or flight, played both slow and fast. I can't feel that either name, love or flight, applies here. I'm attracted by an old idea that leans a little toward flight. The fast version was said to represent Loga traveling down to Nibelheim. And the slow, of course, Wotan traveling down to Nibelheim. powerful transition music before scene three. Wagner adds a striking, unforgettable motif played by 18 anvils, all tuned to the same note, F, but in three sizes, and so in three different octaves, and divided into three groups by rhythm, but together hammering out the motif that represents either forging or the Nibelung dwarfs, who are now enslaved by the ring, digging and forging, hammering ferociously for Albrecht.
At the beginning of scene three, in the deep red glow of an underground cavern, Alberich is torturing his own brother, Mima. Mima is the cleverest metal worker, and Alberich has told him how to create a magic hood, the Tarnhelm. Mima has already made it, but he wants to figure out how to use it for himself. Alberich seizes the Tarnhelm and puts it on. To the accompaniment of a marvelously apt motif for the magical Tarnhelm, he vanishes in a cloud of mist when he whispers a spell. Night and mist, Nacht und Nebel, like no one, niemand gleich. Nacht und Nebel, niemand gleich. Siehst du mich, Bruder? Do you see me, brother? No? Then feel me, and an invisible whip lashes Mima without mercy. With the Tarnhelm, Alberich feels invulnerable, and he informs the terrified Nibelungs from now on they will have no rest, they are now his vassals forever, and he harries them away to dig. Now Wotan and Loga arrive and hear poor Mima whimpering. As the hammering motif changes to a lyrical background, Mima tells how the Nibelungs once dug metals happily to make trinkets for their wives. But now they must dig and pile up gold ceaselessly for Alberich. Some commentators, among them Theodore Adorno and Robert Gutman, have felt that the portrait of Mima is anti-Semitic. Derek Cook tells us that composer Gustav Mahler believed that too, and Mahler as a conductor was for two decades an outstanding interpreter of the ring. Nevertheless, Cook dismisses the idea, and Wagner himself describes Mima in an early sketch as small, deformed, red-eyed, wrinkled, bald, and so on, and he specifically adds there is to be no caricature. Wagner expressed his anti-Semitism blatantly, frequently in print, but there remains debate as to whether he did so with Mima. That applies also to Mima's brother Alberich, who returns, now visible, with the Tarnhelm hanging from his belt. He sees Loga and Wotan, and with a motif called Dominion or Power of the Ring, harshly orders all the Nibelungs back to work. Citra, tremble. You may have recognized Power of the Ring and the orchestra. Father, 
as simply an unhappy variation of the Rhine maiden's joy in the gold. Here they both are. With his slaves now gone, Alberich asks Loga and Wotan what they're doing there, and they answer they have heard of Alberich's wonders and come to see them. What will he do with all that gold? With tremendous hostility, Alberich says the hoard of gold will force everyone to renounce love. Gold will corrupt even the gods. They will serve him, and their pretty wives who scorn him will be forced to submit to his pleasure even without love. Beware, habacht. Beware the army of the night when the Nibelung treasure arises to daylight. And we hear the sinister motif of the treasure or hoard. This is a later, clearer version, accompanied by the Vea motif. Loga now asks, how Alberich could protect the hoard and the ring from a thief in the night. And when Alberich boasts of the Tarnhelm, Loga pretends to doubt its power. Alberich smugly shows off, changing himself into a dragon. to the enjoyment of Wotan and the pretended fear of Loga. Then, goaded by Loga, who pretends to doubt that he could change himself into something safer, that is, something small and easy to hide, Alberich transforms himself into a toad. and he is at once captured and stripped to the Tarnhelm. We won't hear the toad music again, but in the third opera of the ring, Siegfried, we'll meet another dragon, and again, Mima. At any rate, once Albrecht is captured, the scene changes, and during the transition music, Loga and Wotan bring him to Valhalla. There, humiliatingly bound, he is forced to summon the Nibelungs to bring the horde. Albrecht kisses the ring, and the dwarfs fearfully come up through the earth, bearing the treasure to the accompaniment of threats from Alberich and from the orchestra, the motifs of the horde, misery, and the Nibelung theme, and power of the ring. <laughs> Having brought up the gold, the shrieking dwarfs are harried away by Aubrey waving the ring. 
Albrecht now would like to leave. Would Loga kindly return the Tarnhelm? Loga, on his own, simply adds it to the hoard, but as to the ring, he silently leaves the decision up to Wotan, who demands it, saying it is Albrecht's, only by theft. Albrecht furiously replies, with justice, said Wagner in his first sketch, that Wotan's crime, if he takes the ring, will be even greater than Albrecht's. It will be a sin against his own laws. But Wotan contemptuously wrenches the ring from Albrecht. Albrecht calls himself now the most miserable of the miserable, and Wotan calls himself now the mightiest of the mighty. Albrecht Raging with hysterical laughter, responds with a tremendous curse on the ring, death to all who wear it, torturing worry for those who own it, gnawing jealousy for those who don't. It will breed envy, but not profit or pleasure. The lord of the ring will be the slave of the ring until it returns to Alberich. During his curse, we hear the important one-note motif of hatred. a motif also known as resentment or annihilation. It accompanies the bitter words, am I now free, really free? Bin ich nun frei? Wirklich frei? And we also hear the motif of the curse itself, later repeated by the orchestra alone, Here it is, as Albrecht says it, with the words, As by curse it came to me, cursed be this ring. Albrecht concludes his curse of the ring with the words, Keep it now, guard it well, my curse, you will never flee. Albrecht disappears into a crevice, accompanied by the Vea motif, and it is now nearly sunset, the deadline set by the giants. The kettle drum plays a slow version of their motif as the mist that had fallen with the loss of Priya begins to clear.
The other gods and the giants return, and the gold is piled high enough to cover Friar from view, a ransom that fills the gods with shame. The treasure is completely used up, but Fafner can still see Friar's hair and demands that the Tarnhelm be put there to hide it. Then, through a chink in the pile of gold, Fossolt sees her lovely eye, and they demand the ring to fill that space. Now, Wagner, the dramatist, has Loga launch his cruelest barb at Wotan. He pretends to be naive and says to the giants three seemingly unnecessary words, Lost euch raten, be advised, or let me explain. Words that perfectly introduce false sincerity, false earnestness. Let me explain. Wotan is going to return the ring to the Rhine Maidens. Wotan, of course, angrily denies that and he resists the pleas of the other gods to give up the ring when suddenly the air grows dark and there rises from the earth in a mysterious bluish light the ancient, all-knowing earth goddess Erda, who tells Wotan to give in, Weicha Wotan, Weicha. Her slowly rising motif is a mournful version of the nature motif. Then, as she says, a dark day, ein düsterer Tag, dawns for the gods, dämmert den Göttern. Her motif is turned upside down and becomes that of the twilight of the gods, Götterdämmerung. Erda slowly descends. Wotan starts to follow to question her, but is held back by the other gods, and he finally yields the ring. Fafner at once begins putting the gold into an enormous sack. Fossold demands his share, but Fafner sneers that Fossold wanted Freya more than the gold. They quarrel. Loga tells Fossold to let it all go but the ring, which Fossold grabs, but Fafner uses his club. and he leaves the dead fossil to the sound of the curse. Fafner takes the gold, the Tarnhelm, and the ring. The quick fulfillment of Albrecht's curse leaves Wotan shaken and he resolves to learn more from Erda. One result of his visit to her, which occurs between Das Rheingold and Die Valkyrie, will be their daughter, the Valkyrie warrior maiden Brynhilde, who is Die Valkyrie. But now the mist that came when Freya was taken away still obscures the background, including Valhalla. So Donner, the thunder god, decides to clear the air with a quick storm. This is the source of the concert hall selection known as the entry of the gods into Valhalla. He calls to the mists and vapors, Heda, Heda, Hedo. Heda, Heda, Hedo. 
Music we'll hear again in The Storm That Opens Die Valkyrie. A blow from Donner's hammer introduces what Sir George Schulte has called the sonic climax of Das Rheingold. mist clears, and we see not only the glistening, still unoccupied castle, but also leading to it, a rainbow bridge across the valley of the Rhine. Wagner here has six harps, all playing different notes, reinforcing the strings with the music of the rainbow bridge, and yet, it is hardly a leitmotif since it is heard only here in these last few minutes of Das Rheingold. Derek Cook calls the bridge a rainbow bridge of illusion, an illusory path to an illusory stronghold, as in effect Loga also says. As Wotan contemplates Valhalla, deeply worried about what it has cost, the stage directions call for him to act with sudden resolution, as if seized by a great thought. What the thought is, we are not told in Das Rheingold, but a trumpet proclaims... And with that thought, the motif all commentators call the sword... Wotan greets the castle, feeling now, he says, secure from fear and dread. We are told that at the Bayreuth rehearsals, Wagner at this point was dissatisfied and had Wotan pick up a sword left behind by Fafner. But although that has been done in some productions, a sword is not called for in the stage directions, nor would it explain the great thought if it were. We learn in Die Valkyrie that the sword is for a hero who has no desire for the ring and so can recover it free of the curse. Loga does not know of Wotan's great idea, but he does know. They are hurrying to their end, they who think themselves so secure. I am almost ashamed to associate with them. I'm tempted to change back to flame and destroy them. Who knows what I'll do? One commentator has called Loga the hero of the ring, and he certainly has been the manipulator, the superior intelligence, but he will not appear in person again. He will be manifested magnificently, both musically and visually as fire, in the supremely poignant finale of the next opera of the ring and in the overwhelming finale of the entire cycle.
But his last words come when Wotan is about to cross the bridge over the Rhine and hears the sad voices of the Rhine maidens. He tells Loga to stop their complaint. Loga calls down that if the gold no longer shines on them, they can now bask in the glory of Valhalla. But as the gods laugh, the Rhine maidens sing on, commenting like a Greek chorus that truth and trust live only below, above there is but falsehood and fear. It was no exaggeration to say that Wagner had seriously hoped to reform humanity, or at least Germany, with his music. And because of his failure to make the slightest change in society, even after the triumphs of the Ring and Parsifal, he was depressed and discouraged. On the last night of his life, he played for his wife Cosima the melancholy music of the Rhine Maiden's complaint, written 30 years earlier to the words, false and cowardly as everything on earth. And he said to Cosima, strange how I knew it even then. But the orchestra answers with a grandiose statement of the sword motif. And the full orchestra joins with the motifs of Valhalla and the Rainbow Bridge to conclude Das Rheingold, the prologue to the ring. A serious question was posed to Wagner by his close friend, August Roerkel. After reading the entire text of the ring, but before Wagner had written the music, Roerkel asked, in essence, why does the ring end the way it does? Wagner's answer may remind you of his comment when his family failed to appreciate his play, Leubaut. He said to Roerkel, much will become clear, quote, only through the music. For me, there is a somewhat related question about the ending of Das Rheingold. If we didn't know the background, if we didn't know the comments of both the Rhine Maidens and Loga, it seems to me that the last measures of Das Rheingold would strike any listener as pure glory, not even a hint of falseness or illusion. And so for me, there is here, and it's important from Wagner's point of view, there is here a conflict in the relationship between the music and the drama. It's a relationship I'll come back to again as I continue talking about the ring. I leave you now with those clearly triumphant final measures of Das Rheingold.
so much for listening to episode 43 of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast. That's all we have for today, but we will be back with you before the end of the week with part two of this Talking About Opera series, so there is more Wagner coming your way in the very near future. I'm your host, Naomi Baratera, and thank you for listening. 